Listener Production. Samantha Harris is one of Australia's most recognisable faces. Only the second Aboriginal woman to grace the cover of Vogue, Harris is just 30 years old. And yet she's also a 17-year veteran of the modelling industry. Harris is a Dungaty woman whose beloved mother, Myrna, was part of the Stolen Generation. Harris's connection to her people's history and stories runs deep. And she's been outspoken about racism in the fashion world. You know, I've been singled out about my culture, about my race. Um, I've been told that I'm the token Aboriginal model. I'm only a model because I'm Aboriginal. To hear that, to read that in this day and age, it's, it's just really sad and it's not right. The Weekend List with Tate McGregor is also on its way. That's where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. My name's Jamila Rizvi and this is your Weekend Briefing with model Samantha Harris. Sam, you grew up in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. Your mum is a First Nations woman and your dad is of German and English descent. Did you grow up with a sense of being pulled between two cultures or did your identity sit kind of comfortably from early on? Um, I think my identity sat kind of comfortably, as you said. Um, I understood both kind of aspects and it's a difficult kind of topic, I guess you could say. The past is, you know, horrific and horrendous and, um, you know, my mum went through a lot of terrible things growing up. Um, So, yeah, I don't don't know. I just, it's a tricky question, especially to start with. There are kids who grow up between cultures who are really acutely aware of it and feel that sense of I'm not quite sure where I belong or they feel an affinity with one culture over the other. And then there are kids who grow up between cultures who just kind of get on with it and it doesn't play necessarily a major role in their psyche. So it's interesting to hear which which group you fall into. You mentioned also oh sorry. Where I grew up in Tweed Heads, um, there was a lot of Indigenous kids around. So I felt at home because, you know, my mum's Indigenous, I'm Indigenous. So I wouldn't say I was kind of swayed to one kind of culture, but there was definitely, you know, a more prominent Indigenous culture in Tweed Heads than obviously German and English descent. Your mum was part of the stolen generation. Did that shape yes. your thoughts of yourself as an Aboriginal woman and living in a country that, as you alluded to, hasn't yet come to terms with the more shameful parts of its history? Yeah. Um, my mum told me about it. You know, she would say bits and pieces when we were younger, but obviously she didn't want to tell her, you know, her kids, like, you know, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, what had happened to her. But she was a bit more vocal the older we got and it happening in general is horrific and, you know, it, it shouldn't have happened and it's just, yeah, it's really sad and upsetting and disgraceful that it's not acknowledged still. But also to know it's your mum. It was my mum, my aunties. It wasn't, you know, my ancestors, like well, my ancestors, but, you know, it's my mum. They did that to my own mother and my aunties. Like it's heartbreaking. She was at my house a few years ago and she goes to me, um, Samantha, I want to go back to the home I was taken to which is Bomaderry, so it's probably maybe three hours out of Sydney maybe. And we went back there and just the homes, some of the homes are still standing. She could point out which one was hers, which to this day makes me feel sick. And um, she was saying that it didn't look as big as it was, so it just shows how little she was when she was there for sisters. And, um, yeah, it was very, very heartbreaking to see. Yeah, there's that stories that we get of our ancestors and our family 
the ones who yeah. we never met, the ones who lived yeah. generations and generations yeah. ago and there's mm-hmm. one sense of affinity you feel there but when you're talking yeah. about someone you live with every day and who you know yeah. better than you know yourself, it's a different yeah, exactly. kind of pain. It kind of hits home a lot more because, you know, it's my mum. She raised me. You know, she, We didn't have a lot growing up, but she made sure we had a better life than what she did when she was younger. She sounds incredible. You, She is. You entered your first beauty pageant, Sam, when you were just a little kid. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about wanting to do that. Where did the idea come from? Because your mum... I've read, was super supportive of your desire yes. to be a model, but it was you that wanted to chase that career in the first place. What attracted you to modelling? I don't know, to be honest. I did my first beauty pageant at four years old. Like all the pretty clothes and things like that as a four-year-old would be kind of enticing. But I was a really shy girl, really shy. I wouldn't speak or anything. And it kind of blows my mind that I wanted to get on a catwalk. But only my mum could watch. No one else could watch. If I saw anybody else in that audience, I would get really, really cranky and I would tell them to go home while I was on stage. But you clearly wanted to do it enough to push through that shyness. Yeah. It's like I was a different person on there or I don't know. But um, obviously now I love it and, you know, I feel right at home and I walked in Sydney Fashion Week last week and it was amazing. You became a household name, really, after becoming a magazine model search finalist. And by then you were only just entering your teenage years. Modelling is an industry that values particularly young women for how they look and has incredibly exacting standards. How did you cope with that pressure at the age where most of us are trying to hide away from the world and just (laughs) sit with our pimples in our bedrooms? Um, again, it's just something that I really wanted to do. I think I was, when I first entered the model search, hundreds of girls enter nationwide. So I never thought in a million years that they're going to pick little old Samantha Paris and Tweed Heads. I I really wanted them to, don't get me wrong, but it's literally finding a needle in a haystack. Like it's kind of impossible. But, um, I was blown away when I got the phone call to say I was a finalist and, um, you know, flown to Sydney, first time I've ever been on a plane. I was terrified. I think I loved it that much and I was so enthralled and wanted to be a model so much. I didn't kind of get nervous or worried or I don't know. It's Again, it's, it's like me having, being another person or, you know, something that I wanted so badly. I just, the, the other bits didn't phase me at that point in time. I was more excited that I was modelling and doing something that I really loved and always wanted to do. In 2010, Sam, you became the second Aboriginal woman to grace the cover of Vogue, which is an incredible achievement. But the fact that you were only the second in 2010 also says something about Australia's, you know, very Western standards of beauty. Did that bother you at the time? Um, At the time, again, I was very excited and just I was a pinch-me moment that I think I shot an editorial for Vogue earlier that year and I was very excited to be in Vogue magazine, let alone on the bloody cover. But obviously when it came out and I had so many young girls and even, you know, people my mum knew, other Indigenous women, just so proud to see another Indigenous woman on a cover of a magazine. That's when I kind of thought I'm so proud and happy that people are congratulating me. But it should be more often. Like this shouldn't be like, oh, my God, this just happened, like, you know, 10 years later. Like, wow, it, it is wow, but it's, 
Why isn't it happening more? Why did it take 10 years to bloody happen? You had a really early beginning in the world of modelling and also a really yes. successful, not just beginning, but continuation. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> this bright spotlight on your career from the media, mm-hmm. did that change your relationship with your body and the way you look at all? I have my days, you know, sometimes self-critical, sometimes I feel empowered. But again, online, internet, there's always someone that's going to say something about you. Like, you know, I get the generic, oh, anyone can be a model. All right, okay, thank you. Oh, you know, she's too big to be a model or like just ridiculous things that, you know, I don't like seeing or, you know, knowing that people are saying that, that's horrible. Like they're picking you apart where they don't know you as a person. Like you wouldn't walk down the street and say that to someone. So why would you type it? Because the media is totally absurd, I understand you witnessed some behind-the-scenes speculation about whether you were pregnant late last year. And you clapped back on Instagram with this photo of you looking absolutely smoking in a bikini (laughs) and this really bold repudiation of those rumours. Can you tell us about why it was important for you to take control of your narrative at that moment? I overheard it and I was appalled. I was so upset and I was just kind of in shock. Like, who assumes something like that? There are so many factors that, you know, what if what if I can fall pregnant or what if there are so many, like what if I was trying to or so many other aspects within that conversation that is makes it so much more wrong. And, again, it's none of your business, basically. Like, who, who cares if I was or wasn't? And, like, what were you implying? Were you implying that? You know, my body was a bit bigger, which women's bodies fluctuate. It's not a no-brainer. I was like, enough is enough. I'm, you know, I'm not brutal, but I do put it out there that it's not okay. And it's if it's not okay for me, it's not okay for anyone to say about anybody, basically. The modelling and the fashion industries, I think, are are really trying to be more inclusive and diverse Mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, size, race, disability. Mm -hmm. Do you think they're moving fast enough? No, I don't think they're moving fast stuff. They're moving, but again, last week at Fashion Week, there was a vast, diverse cultures within the runway and with disabilities and all those other aspects, which was amazing. But besides diversity, I feel like could have been a bit more. Yeah. For everyone to be able to enjoy the fashion. And again, I'm all about for someone to see you know, me or another girl in an outfit and be like, I have the same body shape as her. That's what it would look like for me. And that's what fashion is about being able to wear it for yourself and, you know, I can't look at a girl on the runway that's a size six and go, that would look like that look like that on me because it wouldn't because I'm not a size six. Again, it's all about being inclusive and, yeah, we still have a bit to, a bit of a way to go. We're moving in the right direction but um, maybe speed it up a little bit. But it is 2021, right? We could definitely be moving faster, yeah. I think, and sometimes I worry Australia is moving slower than the rest of the world, yeah. particularly on issues of race. Yeah. Australian Fashion Week opened with a welcome to country for the first time this year. And you mentioned you walked in multiple shows. Was that meaningful yeah. to you? It was very meaningful because I've been modelling for 17 years for a long time. And that's never happened. Again, as we were saying earlier, do we think things are moving in the right direction? This is a good point and a good part to say, yes, we are moving in the right direction to that in that aspect. And Besides the welcome to country and things like that, there were two Indigenous runways, which has never happened. 
And it's, it was, I was so proud and it was just absolutely amazing just to know that this is happening and we're moving forward in the right direction. Sam, thank you so much for your time oh, you. and insights and giving us a little window into the world of fashion as well as the world of Samantha Harris. Oh, thank you. Not a problem at all. That's it for Samantha Harris coming to a fashion runway near you. Up next, The Weekend List with Tate McGregor, where we recommend what to read, watch, listen, cook, see, do this weekend. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to The Weekend List with myself, Chamila Rizvi, and the extraordinary Tate McGregor, who, as always has got the good stuff for us to be listening to. Oh, yeah. Well, this one's a podcast and it's a little left of field for me because it's about the royal family. It's called The Royal Record. It's a new listener podcast hosted by Australia's leading royal correspondent, Juliet Reardon, and journalist Bryce Corbett. And they have a conversation about the weekly news happening in the royal family. You'll be surprised how much there is to cover in the royal family. And for me, someone who isn't super across what's going on in that side of the world, I'm actually finding it really interesting. If you want to learn some things about what the Queen's up to, for example, this is wild. So the host, Juliet, was talking about how the Queen is going up into Scotland soon and how that it was unusual because she normally goes up in August. It's fun facts like that where I'm like, whoa, these people really know the royal family and all the inner machinations of this just empire. But also, you know, there's so much royal scandal going on at the moment with Harry and Meghan in the States, a new royal baby. It's one to feast your ears on if you want a little cup of tea with the royal family. My phone went off in the middle of the night with the news from the Sussex's press secretary announcing that birth. Um, but, you know, actually, the baby was born three days before uh, on Friday yes. at 11.40am LA time. So, as, we as you said. and I predicted, yeah. as we predicted last week, Harry and Meghan took their time before sharing their news with the world. See, I knew it. We have our finger on the pulse. I want to recommend a Netflix special called High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. Now, I am a foodie and so this is a cooking show or more of a food travel log kind of series. It's in four parts and it is absolutely beautiful. It will make you hungry in the best possible way. It kind of traces the influence and the endurance of African food and cooking traditions on America. And the host, Stephen Satterfield, who is a food writer and former chef, goes back and traces his own ancestors who were trafficked from Africa, who were enslaved from one continent to another, and the influence of food and vegetables and kinds of cooking that they brought with them and how African cuisine and African-American ways of cooking have continued to shape what we think of as American food. Mac no and cheese was a Thomas Jefferson's household original. That's where it came from. <laughs> okay. But Thomas Jefferson wasn't doing his own cooking, man. He had a black slave who was his head chef. Oh and that was the person who came up with it and deserves all the credit. So how is it that mac and cheese became ubiquitous uh, through this kitchen? Well, it started probably in this kitchen with James. But he passed it on and it passed on through generations of cooks who had cooked here. 
we know that Jefferson bought pounds of raw uh, macaroni six months before his death in 1826, so it must have been a well-loved dish here. Hell yeah! Okay, well, if we're speaking about some food exploration, get your taste buds across a new invention in my household. It's tacos, but instead of a taco shell, you use a roti, and it is Ooh. it has changed my life, Jamila. So on the weekend, me and my friends did a roti taco cook-up. You can get these rotis from Aldi that are just simply amazing. In the frozen aisle, chuck them on a pan with some oil. They they get so crisp and delicious and nice. Make a nice little chickpea sort of spiced filling, some red cabbage, maybe a little bit of uh, chili in there, some coriander. Oh, oh, my taste buds are just salivating already. But it's one way to really jazz up a taco night. Go roadie. Don't don't use your numpty tacos. (laughs) I love this idea of Indian-Mexican fusion, but I've got to say, make your own damn roti. Do not buy it from the supermarket. (laughs) Well, if you're lazy like me, the Aldi ones are just, no, I can't say just as good. I haven't tried it, but the Aldi ones are pretty good. I want to make a final recommendation, which is to my dear fellow Victorians, Frozen the Musical is premiering in Melbourne this month. It looks spectacular. Sydney Siders have already had this magical experience and now it is Melbourne's turn. And given we are coming out of yet another dreary lockdown, treat yourself to some sweet Disney dancing and singing on the stage, including women, sisters saving one another instead of waiting for a prince to save them. I love Frozen. I'm going to let it go. Can't wait to get to the theatre. Do you want to build a snowman? Yeah, I do. (laughs) That should keep you well and truly busy this weekend. In the meantime, we would love to hear what you are up to. Tell us what you're listening to, reading, watching at The Briefing Podcast. You can tag us on all our socials. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to the podcast and make sure you can get the headlines direct to your headphones every weekday morning. We will be back on Monday where Tom and Annika will have the news for you fresh from 6am.